Just a warning, this episode may contain language or topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. this season, we explored the world of crime scene and unattended death cleanup with Scott Vogel of Emerging Clean. Now, we're going even deeper, examining the world of death investigations with Barbara Butcher, the author of What the Dead Know, learning about life as a New York City death investigator. Everybody dies in New York City. Well, everybody everywhere dies, but for this episode, we're focusing on New York City. From the wealthy living in penthouses in the Upper West Side to the average person in an apartment in East Harlem or the Lower East Side, you can bet Barbara Butcher has seen it all. All right, so let's get down to business. Hi, Barbara. Hey, Shandi. So nice to see you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, believe me. So you were the chief of staff and the director of the Forensic Sciences Training Program at the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner. You know, you're known to be like one of the top experts in forensic death investigations. And your book, it was amazing. It was a page turner. And I think if anyone and everyone needs to know about death investigations, this is this is a book you need to read. Why, thank you. I really appreciate that. That is part of the reason I, I wrote What the Dead Know, is that nobody knows about medical legal death investigators. When people think about death investigation, you know, or medical examiners, they think of the forensic pathologist doing an autopsy. But can you imagine a physician standing in the middle of an autopsy, you know, doing his work, removing organs, doing her work, brain examination, et cetera. And then they get a call. Oh, there's a murder out on the 2-4 precinct over on the East River there the West River, the Hudson River, you got to go out and do it. What are they supposed to do? Just pop the knife back in the holder and run out and leave the body there to cool? It makes no sense. What forensic pathologists do is they find the cause of death by doing an autopsy. You know, it could be a gunshot wound, heart attack, cancer, whatever. But the manner of death, homicide, suicide, accident, natural, determined by the context, the scene in which the death occurred. That's where all the clues are, the good stuff. So the job of a medical legal death investigator is to go to the scene, examine the body, talk to witnesses, take photographs, measurements, and figure out the manner. So is there a gun there? And is it close to the person's hand? Are there is there gunshot residue on the person's hand and a, and a wound to his temple? Is there a suicide note? Or is it a perfectly natural death? So that was my job. Go to the death scene, work with the police, figure out what happened, write a report, take pictures, and then give that information to the medical examiner. Then they can do the autopsy with full knowledge of the context. And you don't see us on TV. You don't hear about us in books until I wrote this one anyway. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first, but the, the thing is, no one knows of the work we do. And it's the best job in the world. It's soul crushing, but it's such a cool job. 
you know, any TV show I watch, whether it's like NCIS or Criminal Minds or whatever, it's just that one person doing both those things, right? Doing the autopsy, going to the site. And most people don't know that, yeah, they are two separate things. And in regard to, you know, what the specifics of each, you know, job, a pathologist and a coroner, those are two different things or the same thing? You know, this country has the most messed up system of any nation <laughs> in the world. A pathologist is a physician who studies the physiology of disease uh, after it's occurred or looks at, you know, cell samples for diagnosis. A forensic pathologist does autopsies. A coroner is a very general name. You can be an 18-year-old high school graduate with a driver's license and be elected coroner in any of the upstate New York counties, many of them, let's say. And without training even, or you can be a funeral director and be a coroner. But in Los Angeles, the coroner is a forensic pathologist who is fully trained in forensics and investigation. We have a mixed system throughout this country, either appointed coroners, elected medical examiners. It's crazy. And the quality of investigation is, of course, wildly, wildly varying. Wow, that's, yeah, I had no idea. So they're elected, basically. Wow. And they can have no training, little to no training, basically. Sure. I mean, they're supposed wow. to, uh, within a year, get some training, or, you know, <laughs> go to one of the courses. But that, that's kind of a vague statement. Go get some training in a year, okay? But in the meantime, <laughs> there's a death over there on Beechwood Street, and we want you to run over there and figure out if it's a murder or not. And wow. that's why when you look at cases like, what's it, Lori Daybell and her husband, Chad, how his wife was found on the floor dead. And he said, well, you know, she didn't feel well last night. And they went, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. There you go. Take care. Natural. Bye. It's crazy, right? And of course she was murdered, found out later. But that's insane. It is. It is. But this, this country has a very, very unusual mixture of um, coroners, medical examiners, pathologists, and in some counties, the sheriff or the district attorney is also the coroner and responsible for death investigation. So now that, you know, we understand, you know, what these different things are, how did you get into this line of work, Barbara? I was a gift from God. Um, uh, seriously, the way I got this job is very unusual. I was a physician assistant working in surgery. Um, then I was a hospital administrator and I had some nice jobs, but you know, problem is I drank myself right out of them. I was an alcoholic and it caught up with me and I pretty much lost everything. My home, my job, my relationship, it was a mess. But I persevered in living in a 170-square-foot little studio with pigeons on the window and a hot plate and a half-refrigerator. And, you know, I still managed to live. Uh, what was I doing? Oh, I was working part-time off the books in a button store. So things were not good. I had a very small life, and uh, the drinking got worse. Eventually, I bottomed out, and I woke up one morning in a twisted heap of sweaty sheets on the floor, with a cut on my head, scraped knees, and all kinds of other little stigmata of drunkenness. And uh, I didn't remember what the hell had happened the night before. Uh, later on, my friends reconstructed it for me. I uh, had gone to a Chinese restaurant that I favored because it served free, unlimited wine with every meal. So I could stretch out a, an entree and a shared appetizer for two and a half hours. 
Waiters hated me, of course, but because that free wine kept on coming from that box in the corner with a little spigot on it, and it tasted just like turpentine, but still, the real addict keeps drinking, and I did. Anyway, I went into a blackout. I fell up the stairs, which is hard to do unless you're really drunk. Most people fall down the stairs, but I was creative. It was really bad. When I woke up the next morning, I was sicker than I had ever been in my life. More than a hangover, it was a sense of terror. Had I lost my mind, why couldn't I remember anything? And I called a friend after swallowing a fistful of aspirin, and she said, how about a meeting? A meeting? What the hell are you talking about? I'm in no shape to go anywhere. She said, how about an AA meeting? Whoa, that really blew me away. And I went, and then I went the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And 32 years later, I'm still sober. So what does that have to do with getting my job? New York State offers services to alcoholics since it's a disease and it's a disabling disease. One of the programs they have is called EPRA, the Employment Program for Recovering Alcoholics. And I went to it because I did what I was told by my sponsor. And uh, over a six to eight week period, they gave me all kinds of tests, the Minnesota Multiphasic Myers-Briggs Preferential Occupational Index, blah, blah. And um, at the end of these, the end of these tests, my counselor said, "Well, you should either be a poultry veterinarian or coroner." I said, "Poultry? Why poultry?" He said, "Well, you're good with diagnostics. You'd be good with veterinary medicine, but if you worked with puppies and kittens, you would get upset. You would be too affected if they died. But chickens? Well, nobody cares about chickens. They have beady little eyes, and you don't really get attached to them." I said, "I'll take coroner. I'll take the dead people." He said, all right, call the one person in New York City who you think has the best job in the world. So I did. I called Charles Hirsch, the chief medical examiner, and I said, may I come in and talk to you about your work? Informational. Of course. He was so gracious. He let me come in and we, we spoke and I met the director of investigations and some other folks there and they offered me a job. They said, look, we've got an opening for an investigator in a couple of months. Do you want it? Do I want it? Are you kidding? Hell Yeah. Sign me up right now. I don't even think I asked what the pay was. And that was how I got my start. And, you know, I call it in the book a God shot. How when something bad happens to you or a misfortune, sometimes it leads you to something better. It takes you somewhere else, somewhere new. And that's what happened for me. So what really attracted you to that job? You know, when I was a kid, I loved clues. My brothers and sisters and I, we used to just plant clues around the house. Clues for what? I have no idea, but we liked looking at the clues. And I got a uh, dissecting kit for my birthday one year and a frog in formaldehyde, a dead frog, of course. And I dissected it and saw all the little muscles and bones. I thought it was very intriguing. So the kids in the neighborhood started bringing me roadkill and, you know, they bring me like a little dead possum. And I'd say, oh, look here. Now you see these little squiggly lines across his back? That's a, that's a tire mark. See? And so he was run over and his little chest cavity was crushed. There you go. There's your cause of death. So I always had that kind of weird curiosity, uh, actually nosiness, if you really want to put a fine point on it. So, and I had wanted to be a cop. My dad was a cop, but he said, no, don't do that. The city will chew you up, spit you out. They'll, they'll destroy your soul. That's a bad job for you. All right. Well, 
here I was. I got to do my childhood dream. Look for clues. Poke at things. Be nosy. Look at people's deaths. Look at their lives. Go into their homes and see all their secrets and use those secrets to figure out what happened to them. It was an absolute gift for me. And it matched my last name, too. You know, the cops love that. Butcher's here. <laughs> Dr. Butcher. And I'd say, look, I'm not a doctor. And they say, yeah, I know, but it sounds so damn good. Dr. Butcher. It kind of does. Yeah. <laughs> they should make an exception and just add it to you. Add it yeah. in front of your name, you know, like Doc Butcher, or Dr. Butcher. Well, yeah, well, they did. They used to call me Doc, Doc Butcher. And they loved to say things like, Doc Butcher responded to the scene and examined the butchered remains of the decedent. <laughs> you know, that sounded real good in a report, right? It was fun. We had a lot of laughs to overcome those dark times that we were, you know, in the midst of tragedies and deaths and destruction. We had a few laughs. I think like most people, I don't know much about the OCME, but how many offices are there across New York City? Do you have a few or do you have a lot? Well, when I was there, we had um, one in each borough. So Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, and Staten Island each had their own offices. But it was rather inefficient to staff those offices. You, you couldn't really predict the need for an investigator accurately. And we wanted to respond promptly because you don't want police officers standing around on overtime waiting for me to show up. And nowadays, it's uh, the central office of Manhattan, and then there's a Brooklyn office and uh, Queens office, but they spread the work around uh, much more efficiently, and they dispatch out of Manhattan. Back in those days, we were everywhere. Wow. I mean, so how many cases would you handle in a week? You know, every week was crazy. Uh, back in those days, we were having 2,400 homicides a year. Uh, the year I left, 2015, we only had 200, I think, 280 homicides. Now we get maybe three or 400 a year. But can you imagine 2,400 homicides a year? So every day I was pretty much guaranteed to see one. And then, of course, there were suicides, accidents, uh, and then natural deaths. We'd have to respond to a natural death if there was no attending physician to sign the death certificate, or if the person died alone, we'd have to go check it out. And, you know, many times you'd go there and check it out and find out it was not a natural death, that someone hastened it along, perhaps an elderly grandmother, and they just didn't want to wait for the will to be read and pushed it along. So every week I worked, we called it on tour. That's when you worked out on the streets. So I would average probably four to five cases a day out on the street, a day. Then, I mean, in New you know, York City, it's pretty big, so yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, some days I'd do zero. Wow. And then some of us worked, uh, we'd alternate working the phones, uh, hospital deaths. If someone was lucky enough to make it to the hospital before they died, uh, there was no scene for us to investigate any longer. So the physicians would call us and give us all the relevant information about what they saw, what they did. And then the police would get their reports and then bring the body in for an autopsy. So that was basically just report writing. But the real action was out on the street doing scene work. Yeah, probably three or four a day. But, you know, of course, I was working all the overtime in the world. Because once you get hooked on this kind of work, you can't stop. And at time and a half, you could work the midnight to eight and get all the action. 
because nothing good happens after midnight. It's all the bad stuff. So uh, I worked the night watch for quite a while, quite a few years. So you did this for 23 years? Yeah. uh, The first 10 years as an investigator. And then after 9-11, I was promoted to director of investigations and then eventually became director of forensics. And I retired. When I retired, I was chief of staff doing the administration and the political stuff for the agency. Kind of like a break getting off the street. To do this job for that long, what's your personality like? What qualities do you have that you think helped you survive? Well, number one was the ability to detach from my emotions. If you walk into a scene where there's a child and a mother dead on the floor, murdered, the emotion that washes over you is pretty awful. It's horror, grief, sadness, fear. All these things wash through you rapidly. And how can you work if you're feeling all those things? My responsibility was to the decedent to find justice for them, to get answers for the family and get them justice too. So I'd shut it down, detach, and then just go laser focus on the forensics, on my observations, uh, on what the witnesses were telling me. So I think that was the primary defense mechanism. But the personality, I think you have to be a very strong person and a person who wants to take care of things. I don't like it that the world is messy, that there's evil, that there's bad things happening. I want it to stop. Now, do I have any power over the world? No, of course not. But I have a little corner of the earth where maybe I could do one or two good things in a day that would help put away bad guys, help grieving families. So I liked that concept. And as I mentioned before, I'm nosy as all hell. You know, I have to know what's going on. That's my personality, pretty much. And weird. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, you have to be weird. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, was that part of your motivation, just that kind of really wanting to know, you know, just kind of being, like you said, like nosy and wanting to know things and wanting to kind of get to the bottom of things? I mean, because this work is tough, right? And it's it's Mm. really important work, but something had to motivate you to keep going. Yeah, something, just this desire to fix things, to to know what went wrong and then fix it somehow. Um, You certainly can't bring anybody back to life, but you can help catch a bad guy. And I just, I love investigating and I love to know what's going on. You know, after I, I left the job, after I retired, I... One of the things that hurt me the most was no longer being relevant, no longer being in the game. I used to know everything that was going on in the city. I was a a Bloomberg person, you know, he's three terms as mayor. I worked closely with his people, so I knew stuff. I knew what was going down. And I knew what was going on in the city all the time. And that made me feel in the know and relevant. And leaving the job, Suddenly, there was no identity. Like, who the hell am I now? How do I count in the world? I don't. That was a real hard pill to swallow. And also the work that you've done. Not everybody can do that, especially with the dead. And (laughs) you seem to have done it flawlessly, you know, without (laughs) being scared or being awkward. Yeah, why do you think that is? 
Dr. Hirsch, the chief medical examiner, told me that the dead body is really the rental car that we got around in during life. Uh, Some of them crash prematurely when they're shiny and new, and others just wear out and rust up and fall apart. And once the person is gone, once the soul has left or the life has left the body, it really is just a rental car. And now we've got to clean it up and figure out what went wrong with it. So I tried to detach in that way and just look upon the body as a vessel. Dead people don't scare me. Living people, however, scare the living hell out of me. Now, dead people will never hurt you. People think, oh, they've got germs. They're going to, you can catch things from dead bodies. No, you can't, not unless you start kissing them or doing something disgusting. There's no harm in a dead body. If people are frightened by looking at it, I I believe it is because we're then reminded of our own mortality. That's going to be me someday, but I just put that right out of my mind and used the body as the, the primary evidence of what had happened. And, you know, there's a little ritual I used to do when I finished a case, I would make just sort of wiggle my fingers over their forehead. Not exactly a sign of the cross, not exactly a Jewish star, but a little, like a little blessing. Go in peace. Off you go. Back to the universe. It was my way of saying goodbye and good luck, good fortune. I hope you're at peace. And so there were a lot of little rituals like that. Sometimes when I'd see like a woman my own age did, that was very bothersome because I could identify with her. But again, you just push it away and get about your business. Look at the forensics. What is the angle of the wound? Don't count the wounds and think, oh, Jesus, that must have been horrible when that knife went in over and over and over. You do that, you're doomed. Instead, think, hmm, the number of wounds reflects a great anger. The placement of the wounds near the heart, near the face, indicates perhaps a personal knowledge of this victim, not some random killing. There's anger here, there's rage. So let's look at that. And those are the kinds of things you try to think about. How did you cope with the reality of the job? I mean, did you have like a hobby that you did or, you know, I mean, obviously you use humor to kind of deal with it as well. Yeah. You know, I learned an important lesson, promptly forgot it, you know, as one does, right? Learn a valuable lesson, don't put it into action until it really starts falling down. What happened was in my training, I watched uh, this uh, an autopsy of an eight-year-old girl who had been raped and smothered and thrown on a junk pile. And the pathologist doing the case, Dr. Jackie Lee, she was busy working. And as I was looking at this little girl, I was so overcome with sorrow, with horror, with fear. And I, I asked Dr. Lee, how do you do this? How do you see this every single day and yet go home and live a life? And she said, Barbara, what you've got to do is when you leave this place every day, surround yourself with things of beauty, art and food and music and dance and culture and love, and do something creative, make something to offset the destruction that you see, make something new. And that was such good advice. But being all caught up in the work, I didn't follow it that well. And when things started to cave in on me, when I started to be uh, frightened all the time, luckily, someone came along and said, you know, you should have a little house somewhere. There's a place in the Catskills where the houses are all cheap and abandoned, and a little town called Mountaindale. So I bought this little cheap house that had a trout stream in the back and a mountain behind it. 
and grass and trees. And I worked on the little house. I fixed it up. I decorated it. I played in the the grass and planted flowers. And I got a dog and two cats. And that was, I think, the creative force that kept me going, that I had something of beauty that I could be in the moment, not in my head, but out there feeling the grass. That made me very happy for a long time. But then other things happened like 9-11, and then there was no getting through it. And just to go back about your own mortality, you know, the cases that you worked on involving drug overdoses and alcoholism, especially since you're open about your past, Mm -hmm. did they make you think of your own mortality and even reflect on how things would have been? Oh, absolutely. You know, especially I I saw this one woman, we went into her home, the neighbors heard a loud, raucous noises, called the police. And we found the woman um, nearly naked on the floor, dead and bruised and cut and blood everywhere. And the coffee table was overturned and things were a mess. And cops were like, geez, this is a bad homicide here. Something really went down. And then as we looked closer, Of course, I smelled alcohol on her. She was reeking of it. And there were empty bottles all over the house. And I noticed that her skin was slightly yellowed and the whites of her eyes were very yellow. And we also noted that the door had been locked from inside. And so were the windows. So wait a second. There was nobody in here with her. How did this happen? Well, how it happened is that alcoholics, when they reach a point in their cirrhosis of the liver, that the liver is enlarged, the liver can no longer function properly, and their blood does not clot effectively. So a minor cut can result in them bleeding to death. One small, you know, three-inch cut on the head, they'll bleed like crazy and hemorrhage. So This woman, we noticed that the bruises on her body were of varying ages. Some were greenish and dark that they had been from a while ago. Others were fresh, bright red and purple, blood still pulsing, not pulsing, but, you know, palpable under the surface. So there were a lot of different injuries of different ages. And the main cut on her head, there was a bit of blood on the overturned coffee table on the sharp corner of it. And what we established was that In a drunken state, she had been just running around the house, knocking over furniture, collapsing, getting up, falling again, and had just bled to death. And I saw that at least in three different cases where it looked like hell, like a slaughterhouse, but it was just another poor old alcoholic who destroyed their body. And that boy, that would hit me in the head. I'd be like, Jesus, that's so close to being me. And I could understand the craving she must have had for that alcohol that she'd just keep going and going and drinking. And it was very, very sad. And I'd say, my God, how did I get so lucky? How did I get sober? She didn't. It was a sad thing. That's incredibly sad, yeah. What was it like being, not the first woman, the second woman, you know, on the job? <laughs> the one who could uh, last, you know, more than a couple months. What was it like working in a situation where there's mostly men as co-workers? It was know? tough back then, 1992. 
Yeah, there was one woman hired in Manhattan before me, but she ran out screaming after three months. Now, I don't know if that's because of the guys giving her a hard time or because the work was so awful. You know, I was the second one hired from Manhattan and I lasted. It was difficult at first. You know, the guys, they like to mansplain. I'd be like, well, Barbara, you have to do this. Don't bother doing that. And I'd say, well, gee, um, the, according to the textbook, I, I should do this, this, and that. Ah, come on, just let it go. They're already dead. I mean, some of these guys were, were worn out. But then there was working with the cops. Now, that was a whole other story. I recall coming on a scene, and uh, one of my first, and the officer said, yeah, honey, how can I help you? I said, well, uh, hi, I'm from the medical examiner's office, and I'm here to take, you know, look at the body. And he says, that ah, crime scene's already been here, already looked at it. Don't worry about it. I say, no, I, I have to. And that really bothered me. I said, damn it, that's not going to happen to me again. Next time I go out, and the cop says, yeah, honey, how can I help you? There's a crime scene here. Back up. I said, I'll tell you what. You can't help me, but I think I can help you. I'm from the medical examiner's office, and I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to examine that dead guy, and I'm going to tell you what he died of, when he died, how he died, and maybe even who did it. And then you can take it to court and say, Barbara Butcher told me. How's that? Boom. They were like, whoa, who the hell is she? And I think that my eagerness to do the job well, uh, my my, I, I come from a cop family, so I like cops, and um, my collegiality with them and my curiosity, they came to respect me. They knew I was there to do a job and to do it well. And I also enjoyed the teaching aspects. I say, oh, here, look, guys, you see the see that angle there of that wound, how one side is very sharp, the other's kind of blunt looking, torn. I think we from a, a hunting knife. See the, uh, the abrasion from the hill? And they'd like that. Wow, good. That's cool. That's interesting to know. Maybe they were even a little afraid of me. Because here's this, this nice woman, and she's not scared of nothing, poking around with a dead guy here. So in time, I earned their respect. And um, I think, you know, from my colleagues too. My, uh, my boss once told me that women made better investigators than men. I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, women are less invested in being right. So they're more inclined to have an open mind and, and not get into dick-waving contests with the police. You know? So I think he was right about that. Women are less invested being, in being right because we're always right. Well, there's a good point. <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. That's fine. Sure. So in your book, so you give us a really good representation of how to understand the lives of the deceased and how you got to understand them by examining the body at the scene or the different locations they were found. So did you know that like this part of the job would be one of the most interesting parts of the job? Not at all, but I soon learned that it's not just how people died, it's how they live. It's endlessly fascinating in New York City, the different ways that people live. And I got to see all of it, which was just so wonderful. Well, first, how you live can often determine how you die. So if I come into a scene that's got little scales and little glassine envelopes and white powder laying around, we know that this person probably died a certain way. 
And you come into another apartment with bookshelves and PBS tote bags and Birkenstocks. That's a whole nother lifestyle. They're going to die of different things, right? But it's just um, the privilege of seeing people's lives. Now, in New York, you can live, most of us live in apartments, some of us up in the sky, uh, some of us in little townhouses, but a lot of us live differently. For instance, there are approximately 2,000 people in New York who live in caves underneath the streets of the city. They live in the tunnels, uh, the old Amtrak abandoned railway tunnels over on the west side, um, where there's little caves that branch off the tunnels. And these caves, are furnished. They put boxes in there and make bookshelves. They have beds. They decorate them. And it's a nice little community. Now, not all the communities are like that. Uh, the so-called mole people, or you know, as they've been called, are very, they're just as varied as the rest of us. So there are some down there that are dangerous criminals and others that are just peaceful people who want to be alone and off the grid. And they live their lives quietly beneath the city. Some people live in shacks over by the river. You know, a lot of that's been cleared out now because it's parkland, right? So money talks and all the poor people walk. And people live in squatter buildings, abandoned places, where they haul their own water in or get electricity from the Con Ed pole outside. There's just so many different ways to live in New York, and I found it absolutely fascinating. And then, of course, there's the rich. The rich die, too. Boy, their apartments are crazy. The elevator goes up to just one floor, their floor, and opens onto the foyer of their magnificent apartments. And inside, there are treasures, art, real art. Not my little poster over here, but actual Impressionist masterpieces. I've seen works by Degas and, and Monet and, and in people's homes. Wow, look at this money. Now, I've not had good experiences with rich people for the most part. <laughs> I, do. I recall one where the, you know, it was late at night and the maid had been allowed to have a friend stay over from who was visiting her from her home country in South America. And the friend died overnight. And the family was furious. Get her out of here, they said at two o'clock in the morning. The poor maid was crying. Her best friend had just died right there in her room with her. And this family was like, this is terrible. Get this woman out of here. And I said, sir, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to do an investigation. I have to ask you a few questions. I need to find out why she died. Well, she better not have brought anything in here. Please, let's be reasonable. And the cruelty to their maid, who was a live-in person of their home, just astounded me. And I actually, I don't usually do this, but I put my arm around her shoulder. And I said, please come with me. Let's just talk. I want you to tell me about your friend. And I hustled her away from these terrible people. But then on the other hand, the apartment I mentioned with the Impressionist masterpieces, the woman who owned them, very, very wealthy. And her bedroom was round. So she could, from her bed, see all these masterpieces lit beautifully. They were small, the smaller works, but still I mean, museum stuff. And as I was getting ready to leave, the son, her son saw me glancing at these. I was very distracted by them. And he said, would you like to look at my mother's collection? And I said, no, no, that's okay. I don't want to trouble you at this time. And he said, no, mom would love that if somebody enjoyed her collection. Okay. And I went and looked at each piece. 
And, you know, there's that moment, especially with impressionist works, all that, what is it called? Pontalism or something, the little dots and dashes. Pointalism, when, yeah. Pointalism. When you step back and suddenly it comes into focus yeah. and you get it. And I had one of those moments and he he saw me and he was happy that someone enjoyed her her collection. And um, I just gave the, you know, as I left, I just gave the lady like a little silent thank you for sharing this. They were good people, very good people, generous. You know, they had a foundation and stuff. But a lot of the times rich people are nasty. <laughs> I don't know why. They should be so damn happy that they're secure. Yeah. Uh, maybe they're scared that everybody's going to take their money. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. I, I feel like you've you've learned so much about people and how people mm-hmm. live. Um, and I find that truly fascinating that, you know, for that job, you're able to do that. The work you did is kind of morbid, right? Obviously, you know, <laughs> but there has to be something you enjoyed the most and something you enjoyed the least about mm. your work. Well, what I enjoyed the least was uh, decomposed bodies, of course. That's a smell that cannot really be described. It's um, it's a smell, it's a taste, it's an infestation of your entire system with this oily, nasty smell. It's kind of like a strawberry milkshake made with garlic. Just this strange combination. I've heard it's like things. a sour sweetness, like a weird... Yeah. It's sweet and it's bitter at the same time, and it's it's just it it's uh, it's an oily smell, so it it, it it sticks to you. It's awful, awful. I hate that smell. So then it sticks to your clothes. Then I assume it gets. Oh it. yeah, during decomp season, which is the summer, I'd only wear polyester because that was more easily um, you can freshen it and wash it. But if you wear natural fabrics, it sticks forever. It's terrible. Decomp so, season. Yes, the summer. When it's warm out, that's when... That's what... Okay. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I did not like that part of the job at all. Uh, And besides, it's to me, it signifies loneliness. If someone dies at home and for a week nobody notices until the smell becomes overpowering, that is the stench of loneliness. And that bothered me a lot. You know, New York's a great place to live if you want to be left alone, but you want to be surrounded by people just in case. Like like hermits who want to go out and live in the woods. That's fine, but then nobody can hear you scream out there. At least in New York, you know, you can yell for help. But these people died a lonely death and there was no one to notice them, that they were gone. That, that upset me. It's a sad human condition. But what I loved about the job was, you know, seeing people's lives was was a great pleasure for me, just seeing how they lived. But the satisfaction came when I helped solve something, when I pointed something out that perhaps led us somewhere, led the police in their investigation. And then what was really satisfying was when I could go to court and testify as to what I found. Contrary to television, the medical examiner and the investigators, we don't testify for the prosecution. We testify for science. So there were times when what I said might favor the defendant in some way, but it was the truth. It was the scientific observation that I was there to tell about and let the jury make up their minds. Most of the time, it was pretty much a sure thing. When I'd go in and testify on homicides, we knew we had the right person between DNA and, and videotapes and everything else. And I really enjoyed teaching 
when there was a complex forensic fact, I liked turning to the jury and explaining things to them. And the first time I testified, though it didn't work like that at all, it was horrible. The defense attorney was a very, very sharp lawyer, and he got me angry. He made me feel demeaned. He said, Miss Butcher, Miss Butcher, you're not even a doctor, are you? Uh, no, I, I, I'm not a doctor, but, 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 you know, they put you on the defensive. And I, uh, I was testifying about a stab wound. There was a, uh, a serrated knife. And as the defendant stabbed the person, that knife, you know, it, it hit bone, the point, and then therefore his hand slid on the knife you know, slid upwards and cut his hand in a serrated knife pattern. When I testified to that, the attorney said, well, Miss Butcher, what are you, an expert on knife wounds? Have you ever written a book on knife wounds? Have you ever even written an article on knife wounds? I said, well, no, I, I've seen thousands, but a question, no question, please. It's either yes or no. Uh, so I was really angry. But then when it came to the trial of the serial killer, Aaron Key, whose specialty was young girls of color, teenage girls, 13, 14, 15 years old in East Harlem, same defense attorney. And when I saw him, I was like in dread. But now I knew what to do. My boss had given me the right lessons, how to listen politely, whether it's the defense attorney or the prosecutor. Listen carefully, pause, don't react, and then turn to the jury and tell them the information. They are the triers of fact. They are the bosses. So tell them and don't let anyone rattle you. Be the more professional you are, the more courteous you are, the more the jurors will appreciate you. And it makes the defense attorney look like hell when he starts yelling things too. <laughs> so I think the greatest pleasure in the job was the times that I got to, um, to testify to what I knew to be true and uh, help get justice for those families. You know, sometimes those families were sitting in the audience. I mean, not the audience, what do you call it? The, yeah, the, in the courtroom. And I'd have to describe things in detail. And I just thought, oh, please, God, why do I hope they don't hear me? Why do they have to be here to hear this? But as Dr. Hirsch pointed out to me, People can handle the truth. What they imagine happened is so much worse than the truth. So give it to them no matter what. There's no need to be gory or to you know exaggerate anything, but you have to tell the jury and the family exactly what happened. That was hard. Speaking of hard, in your book, you talk about 9-11 being life-altering mm. for you and many mm -hmm. others. Oh, yeah. Like, what was that day like? And how did you cope with it after, if you did? Mm. Yeah, I'm still in therapy from that. I'm not kidding. I still go to World Trade Center therapy twice a week. Well, first, I was not there when the planes hit and the buildings collapsed. Now, back in 93, when the World Trade Center was bombed, I was there immediately in that huge crater, crawling around in heels and a skirt because I had expected to do go to court that day. But... Um, only six people were killed then. It was, you know, relatively easy work, I suppose you could say, for all the horror. 9-11, I was not there that day because I had had some surgery some weeks before and I was home sick, healing from that. And I was supposed to go back to work on 
I think September 10th, a Monday, yeah, whatever it was. And then on Friday night, I called my boss and said, I can't come back. I, I just need a couple more days. He said, Barbara, for Christ's sake, you've been out six weeks. I've already got you on the schedule. You're out of sick days. You've got to come in. I said, David, I can't. I just can't. I, I don't know what it is. I, I just feel awful. He was furious. And finally, we settled on the fact that I would come back on September 12th. So, hmm, what an interesting little God shot that was. So on September 11th, I was not there with my friends and with my chief medical examiner, Dr. Hirsch, when the buildings collapsed and they were all injured badly. They didn't die, but they were forever altered. And so when I got there the next morning, you know, remember the city was shut down and I, I couldn't get in. I call, I was in uh, New Jersey at the time in Asbury Park, and I called the Asbury Park police and I said, you got, have you got any guys going in? They said, yeah, we've, we sent a bus full of responders in. We got another bus going in about an hour and a half. You'll, we got a spot for you. And then they called back and said, the city shut down. They're turning us away. And that was, oh my God, that was gut-wrenching. New York is my home my city. What the hell was I doing in New Jersey like some damn tourist? Why? Why wasn't I there with my people? I was furious. And I tried everywhere I could. Anyway, it was about five o'clock in the morning the next day when I finally got in, got an escort through the Lincoln Tunnel. And uh, it was so overwhelming. Jet planes going overhead, F-16s. The military was all over 30th Street where our office was because that's where they were bringing the remains. Ambulance, the, the cops and firemen on the pile. And it was still burning. It was still smoking. And they were scooping up whatever body parts they could find, throwing them in bags and in an ambulance and send them down to the morgue. And it was just like, holy shit, what's going on? Our country is under attack. Our city is under attack. So, you know, if I had had trouble dealing, I, I, this was at a point in my life where the death was starting to accumulate in my mind. I was not doing well. I was um, very shut down emotionally. And so the universe said, all right, you can't handle one death at a time. How about 3,000? About 2,700. How's that for you? And you know, there's an old saying that one death is a tragedy, but a thousand deaths is a statistic. However, when you're crawling around in the rubble of a building you once loved and it's smoking and burning and there's twisted metal everywhere and nothing is recognizable except the little tiny souvenirs of life, things like a date book that says lunch with Jim, one o'clock. Or a uh, there was a desk set I saw, like a, a golf ball on a piece of wood, souvenir of a hole-in-one with a pen holder in it, and a little plaque on it. Oh, or, the, or the graduation picture from elementary school of somebody's kid. When you see things like that, it's not a statistic. Each of those represents a small universe a person's life, and everyone connected to them, their families, their friends, their homes. Each death now becomes very, very personal. So the sheer number of decedents and the overwhelming number of body parts of remains, there were 25,000 remains, because people were just smashed, they were obliterated. That was so overwhelming and yet so very personal. I was working that, you know, that, that night, I worked the line. The line is where they brought in all the 
body pouches. And we would, because the cops and, and firemen were just throwing everything in together that they thought belonged together, and we'd have to open them up, separate the remains. We were finding things like two jaw bones inside another person's chest cavity. How the hell does that happen? What kind of force is it that melds people together and destroys them like that? So we were separating each piece, bagging them, labeling them, recording everything on this this morbid line, you know, in a tent uh, outside on 30th Street. And just doing that work, I mean, I, it was mind-numbing. Just another piece of torn flesh, another piece of bloody bone. And then I opened one bag and it contained a human heart, a penis, and a set of car keys. And for some reason, I, I just stood there staring, like, what the hell is this? How does what what does this represent? Is this is this a man? I mean, what does it mean? And I've never been able to answer that question. But yet, there's something so strange about that to me. That just those three things, how do they relate? <laughs> and and I, I never could, never could figure that out, but I can still see it in my head. A penis, a heart, and car keys. <laughs> that is the that? most random assortment. Isn't yeah. it? It's, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'm glad I can laugh about it now, but at the time I was like, Jesus Christ, how do I catalog this? What do, how do I report this? You know, <laughs> that went on, that job went on forever and ever and ever, uh, just recovering those body parts. Um, and uh, that was very hard work. And so how did I cope with it? Well, I didn't. I grew very irritable, very angry, um, jumpy. Um, frightened. Uh, you know, I 30th Street was closed down, taken off the map, and we just had tents and trailers and cargo vans there. And we kind of lived there. I had a trailer that I could stay in on, on, a, on a cot, and I'd work a 12 or 16 hour shift. And I wanted to stay there. I was with my friends, they understood me. They understood what I was going through. Um, Salvation Army was feeding me candy and good food. And uh, I was gaining weight, you know, <laughs> but they gave me warm socks and a dry sweatshirt and a plate full of beef stroganoff and then a whole bag of Kit Kat candy bars. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, I wanted to be there. I didn't want to drive home to New Jersey two hours, no, especially taken care of. <laughs> exactly. I was taken care of. But when I got, if you know, my partner would say, When the hell are you coming home? Come on, you have to be here. And I'd go home to a cold plate of spaghetti, and I'd get there at like 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. Everybody was already up watching TV, and, and, and when I joined my family, my partner had a couple of kids, I was very jumpy. Loud noises could make me, you know, totally startled. I was frightened all the time, and I was intensely irritable. I didn't want to talk about anything minor. Like she said, uh, where do you want to go to vacation this year? And I was like, What? What do you mean vacation? Don't you understand what I'm doing? I, I can hardly live a normal life. I, I have to go back to work and do this thing. We're, we're together. It's our mission. I really did prefer staying at work. It was so much easier. You know, it felt like, how could you go home and have fun? 
or talk about stupid things like what's for dinner when, when our you know when our whole country is is uh, is is traumatized. So I got help. They started offering us therapy um, over at Bellevue Hospital. I went to see a therapist there, and uh, he said, "You're very angry." I said, "Yeah, no kidding." And he I, he said, "What's the matter? What do you want?" I said, "I want things to be normal again." Nothing is the same. Everything is different now. The whole country is different. My office is different. My home is different. I'm different. He said, Barbara, you must understand that life is a river, and the river flows with direction. And you, my friend, are swimming against the current. You are swimming and swimming, and you are drowning. And you must realize that life moves forward all the time. And he was like a little Buddha, you know, <laughs> he said this. He was so right. I was fighting so hard to restore normality. And I was just fighting and fighting, and it was killing me. I was drowning in it. And he, he was absolutely right. I had to go with the flow of how things had changed now, how the world was going to be different how my office was different. You know, I always liked having my little desk with my little pictures on it and things. And that was gone. Everything was gone. The place was filled with military and cops and, and volunteers from all over the country. So I didn't even have a place to sit anymore. And now I'm out in a trailer on 30th Street. So yeah, that was that was a really, really rough time. I I, I still have not recovered from the PTSD. I still catastrophize everything. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, this building that I'm in right now could fall at any moment. It could be attacked. I could be run over by a car, anything, you name it. I'm always scared. Yeah, I was going to, my next question for you is going to be, you know, <laughs> basically it sounds like PTSD. Once you've seen, I mean, I already had it before 9-11, but I just, we didn't have a name for it back then. Only soldiers had PTSD. But seeing evil all day long, we tend to absorb what we see and believe that that is what is. So if you see murder all day long and you start to think, well, everybody's evil, we're all either victims or murderers, and that's the way the world is. Well, that's not true at all. Not even close to true. But yet, when that is your experience every day, it starts to feel true. And I know a lot of cops, firemen, EMTs, um, death investigators feel have that syndrome of, uh, you know, well, we see the truth. We see what's really going on out here. But nah, that's not the way it is. Life is actually good. People are good. The evil is rare. But when you see nothing but evil, there you go. So I had it before 9-11. 9-11 just put the icing all over the cake of my madness. <laughs> Yeah. So I still, I get good therapy though. What are a couple of the cases that you've worked on throughout your career that you still think about that, that still kind of get to you? You know, there were just some of the, some are small and some are, were big. One of the ones that sticks with me the most was a Dominican family uptown where the mother, the father, and the 12 year old boy were all shot. The three-year-old boy was hiding behind the draperies in the living room, and that's why he wasn't killed. But his little footprints in his parents' blood all over the apartment, 
the little three-year-old had walked through his parents' blood and his little toe prints on the floor, just, I, I could still see them. I was so struck by the horror of that. What happened, it turned out, was it was an older child. They had, a, I think, a kid about 16 or 17 who was working for drug dealers. And I guess he did something wrong. He didn't turn in the money or maybe use some of the drugs. Whatever it was, they decided to come to his home and find out where are the drugs, where's the money. And they probably said to the father, you know, tell me right now or I'll kill your wife. And he didn't know. They killed his wife. Then they killed his son. And then they killed him. And Jesus Christ, how can you live with that thought? And I went into, uh, you know, we, we had three victims and plus this little kid waiting for social services to get there and take the poor little darling away. One of the crime scene guys said to me, Barbara, do you want to go in and do the 12-year-old, start doing your photographs and stuff while I work on this one here? I'll work on the father. I said, yeah, sure. With my typical bravado, I went into the room and there was the 12-year-old. He was just a little guy and he was laying face down with a, a backpack with his school bag, you know, his books. I, I think it was Spider-Man. It was some cartoon character. And he had this little mop of soft curls and this beautiful brown skin and beautiful dark brown eyes. He was so pretty. And he had a gunshot wound in his head. And I, I was like, mm, uh, I can't do this. And I realized that I couldn't be alone in the room with him because I couldn't act. I needed to act. And therefore, I needed an audience. When someone else was around, I could act brave, cool, competent, unaffected. I could do all those things, but I needed an audience. So I said to one of the officers, uh, would you mind coming into the room here with me while I examine the, uh, the boy, uh, you know, just in case? And he's like, just in case of what? So somebody motioned him like, go ahead go with her. And he just stood there while I did my work. And then I was not okay, but I, I could do the work because now I could act like Barbara Butcher. Oh, let's see here. Let's see the angle of the wound. Is there a bullet impact mark on this wall? Let's see the child's uh, time of death or rigor mortis, et cetera, et cetera. I could do my work. However, even today, I still see those little toe prints in blood. One of the strangest things I've ever seen. I can never forget, geez, how many, it must be 30 years by now, yeah, close to it. I can't stop seeing it. So that's stuck in my head quite a bit. Or the, the, the elderly Jewish woman who committed suicide, she jumped from the roof of her building. And when I went to examine her body out in the backyard, you know, she, was, she was broken. And as I lifted her arm, I saw that she had the blue tattooed numbers of Auschwitz. She was a concentration camp survivor. Now, what the hell? Why? After so many years, after surviving a concentration camp, maybe she lost her family, her country, her home, everything, but she had persevered. She had lived. What now could possibly happen that would make her kill herself? After all that, what could it have been? I will never know. But when I went up to her apartment, it was just so spare, so I mean, she had furniture, but there was an emptiness to it, a loneliness. And I thought, wow, that's it. It's the intense 
loneliness of her life. That's what killed her. And just seeing that evil, the evil, the, the reality of those, those, that Auschwitz tattoo, boy, that was like a smack in the head. Just stunned me. And that case sticks with me. After doing that case, it was, I don't know, maybe six in the morning. I went home about eight and I was going to meet some friends for breakfast and go to an AA meeting. And, uh, you know, I changed my clothes and I walked over toward this diner to meet them and I passed a synagogue. I thought, well, let me stop in here. So I went in. There was nobody there, but I was calling, hello, hello, anybody here? And I heard voices down in the basement. And eventually a rabbi came up the stairs and he saw me and he looked like, wow, hello, who, who are you? I forgot I had on a motorcycle jacket, black jeans and boots. And, you know, I was looking not like a typical worshiper at the at the synagogue. So I think I frightened him a little. But I said, you know, um, a Jewish woman has just died, an elderly woman, and I'm wondering if you can say Kaddish, the prayers for the dead, for her. And he said, well, sure. What, what's her, her maiden name? I said, I, I don't know. Do you know her father's name or his mother's name? No, I, I don't know any of that. Well, do you know when she was born or where she was? I said, no, I don't know anything. And I started to cry. And he said, don't worry, we'll say the prayers for your friend. Just like, wow, when the person requesting your funeral prayers is the person who investigated your death, that's a, that's a strange, strange thing. And uh, I've never forgotten her. But yeah, there's, there's plenty of those that stick with me. I can't think of a funny case that stuck with me, but, you know, I mean, there were funny things. Oh, yes, I can. Wait a minute. This was so strange. And it wasn't even my case. It was Randy's, one of my uh, my coworkers. A guy uh, is living with his mother, and she's got a parrot, and the parrot's driving him crazy, squawking and yelling all day, and he thinks the parrot is bad-mouthing him because he's a little crazy. So... He takes the parrot, grabs a knife, cuts the parrot's head off. And the mother starts screaming even more. You murderer, you murderer. What did you do to my parrot? What did you do? So killed her, cut her head off. And then he threw her head out window into the courtyard of the building where some guys were playing dominoes. And splat, the head comes out. It looked like a bloody wig. But then the weird thing as he throws something else out the window, looks like a yellow tennis ball, splat on the ground. And he yells, hey, Ma, don't forget your friggin' parrot. It was the parrot's head he threw out the window. So Yeah, that's intense. Yeah, that's intense, right? But it just goes to show you what people are like. There's crazy things yeah. happening out there. Crazy, crazy things. A parrot as a motor for murder. I guess anything can set someone off, huh? Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> And you wonder why I'm nervous all the time. <laughs> Let me talk about the good for a minute. My job drove me crazy. It crushed my soul, did a lot of bad harm to me. But losing it, that really killed me. You know, when a new mayor comes in, they're allowed to remove the top people from the agencies. And as chief of staff, then I was dispensable. And losing my job almost killed me. It was worse than the PTSD, worse than anything. I lost my identity. If there was ever a time I wanted to drink again or do drugs, that was it. But I didn't. One day at a time, I didn't. I'm 32 years sober now. I'm happy. I've got a good life. And I did the thing finally that Dr. Jackie Lee had told me to do. She said, create something. I did. 
I created the book. And in writing What the Dead Know, I let out what I know, what I know about death and what I know about life. And I cleared my system in a way. I, I was able to let out the emotions, the feelings. I mean, I, a lot of times I cried while I was writing it because feelings all came back to me. Feelings I didn't feel then, but now I could. Now I had the luxury of crying if I wanted to. And so I lived through all the death. And now I've got a wonderful life, a wonderful family. I have had a life beyond my wildest dreams. Wonderful adventures, the ability to do a few things for people and um, learned a lot and loved a lot. So I'm here to tell you, it's worth thinking about saving your own life. I have heard from, from lots of people who've, you know, contacted me through my website to say, you know, I'm sober too. And thank you for, you know, for sharing your story. So eh, maybe it'll help somebody who knows that would be nice. Yeah, and I think it's really incredible that you're open about it because I think part of the stigma is to suppress it and that just continues, right? So if people can't yeah. be open about it, especially for somebody who's been in like such a big position, such a public position to be that open, yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, it's good for people to know. Yeah. I'd like to help dispel the myth that alcoholism is a moral failing. Uh, it's not. It's a disease. It's a chemical reaction in the brain that the uh, the pleasure receptors are empty or some nonsense. So, so, so it's something like that. Who knows? Causes alcoholism. But it is a disease. It is not a moral failing. And diseases can be treated. The symptoms can be relieved and the can't be cured, but it certainly can be treated. And so that's why I speak honestly and openly about it. I'm not ashamed of being an alcoholic. I hope that helps somebody. It it must have been awesome getting some good words from Patricia Cornwell. You know, she talks about you being raw and so open, but also compassionate at the same time. And, you know, true crime is all the rage now. And mm. just why do you think everyone's so fascinated by all of this? Well, you know, first let me say about Patricia Cornwell that she is an incredibly good person. She came to me many years ago to look for some, you know, real life facts that she could put into her book. She researches them very, very assiduously. And, uh, you know, I mentioned to her that we were looking, that I had just gotten a grant to train investigators and we were looking for, uh, you know, more money to pay the, the faculty and stuff. She said, I'll help you out. And she gave us a huge grant. And she showed up at the annual classes and, the, and and signed books for people. And I mean, just so damn generous. She helps so many laboratories and, and, and offices around the country. She's a, she's a very good person. And I'm grateful, so grateful for her help and getting my book out there. Well, let me say about true crime that I find it fascinating too. And I know that a lot of the audience are women. So why is that? Why are women fascinated with true crime? Well, to see a crime laid out with all the suspects and the investigation and everything, I think kind of gives us a sense of control. It explains things. It teaches us. And for women, any more power or control we can get is all the better for living in a tough world. 
even if it's something as simple as the warning signs that your husband has a younger mistress and is about to kill you, you know? I mean, how many of these shows, 48 Hours, 2020, Primetime, all of these, it's the husband suddenly decides that he needs a 20-year-old girl to awaken his love again. And does he get a divorce? No, because he doesn't want to share his money with his ex-wife. He wants to spend it on his new beloved teenage bride. So he decides to kill his wife. And I think that you know, for women to just understand crime, to understand people more, um, I, I think women like it. You now, a lot of men are true crime fans too. Um, and I, I think it's always interesting to see aspects of human nature. What is the most important thing that you want the general public to know about your experience, about death investigations, or about just the role of the death investigator? I want people to know that the death investigation system in this country is messed up. We need a national standards, especially quality standards and training standards. I want people to know that first responders like cops, firemen, EMTs, uh, and last responders like me, that we do the dirty work that so few people can do. It affects us emotionally and physically, and we need help. Um, I'd like people to be aware of that and and think about it. You know, I'd like legislators to start taking these things seriously. And, uh, you know, you don't need to defund the police. You need to train the police. You need to help the police any more than you would defund a medical examiner's office. Just help the people to do their jobs well and recognize the trauma that we all go through. Um, and I would like people to know more than anything that every single life counts. There's no such thing as a minor death or a minor killing. You know, we've heard those expressions like, uh, oh, a public service homicide. When a drug dealer is killed or a sex worker, you know, people don't pay. They're like, oh, well, you know, they don't get as excited. Now, if a white girl on Park Avenue is murdered, you're never going to hear the end of it. It's on the front page of the Times. It's everywhere. But let 10 little girls of color in East Harlem be raped or killed. You don't hear about it. And that bothers the hell out of me. And we all see now how the Gilgo Beach case was finally, uh, they've got an arrest. That case has been bothering me for years. Yeah, it's been a Initially. Yeah, it's, a, what, 11 years now? A case bothered the hell out of me because at first it was like, well, they're sex workers. Nobody was jumping over themselves or, or not doing overtime to solve those cases. It wasn't until, uh, let's just leave it there, that the right, that things have finally been done right. Um, and, you know, this uh, alleged uh, killer, um, I hope they'll, they'll get justice finally for these girls and for their families. Every life is a universe. Everybody is a son or a daughter, a mother, a father, a sister, a brother. We all count big time, even the smallest of us. Your book, it really is a, a good view into the world of death investigations, which is fascinating. And obviously, people will learn so much from just reading it. It's one of those books that, honestly, I read it what within a couple of days. Like I could not put it down. Thank you. It really is Thank great. you for that. How would you like to die? 
I think we that's need to ask a this great question, question. More often, Sean. Yeah. Ask this question all the time. All right. Here's how I'd like to die. Uh, about 91, 92 years old, walking around the city, and uh, there's a uh, a stray bullet fired, you know, and it hits me in the back of the head. And I never feel a thing. I go down dead instantly. But then picture the newspaper headlines. Elderly woman, vibrant, full of life, shot down in her prime. Prime? My God, if I'm 92, laying at home in my bed, you know, sick and for months and months of people having to take care of me, they're like, oh, go already. But if you get shot in the street, suddenly you're a hero. You're a tragic figure. Oh, she was shot down in her prime this wonderful woman so vibrant so full of life you know that's the way the media that's treats it right so that's how i'd like to die how would you like to die chandi <laughs> um not being shot in the head <laughs> but i'm also a little bit less but yeah i'm not as exciting as you i always like i mean i love cake so i would say the last i mean i would actually Diabetes? like to no i would no? like to die okay. with cake in my mouth like just ooh I can yeah. make that happen. I can arrange that. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to kill me. me. Death by cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about you? Yeah. How about um, you, Zoe? Wow. I don't like pain. So if, mm-hmm. as long as I don't feel it, it's probably fine. Okay. All right. That's it. And I actually, maybe I, I want to look okay. Like I don't, <laughs> I want to be in one piece. Okay. So. That's, that's a fair request. Barbara, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. What the dead know. Read the book. You'll find out what they know. (laughs) Take care and please stay safe. You too. You too. Good night. Good night. Thanks to Barbara Butcher for joining us today on the podcast. She's a great guest. And it's honestly, it's a great book. Check out What the Dead Know learning about life as a New York City death investigator. You can find it on Amazon or at a bookstore near you. We'll have the link to the book on Amazon in the episode show notes on our website. We're on social media, so if you're not following us, you should. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and also now on Threads. If you like what you hear, let others know. Share your favorite episodes with family, friends, coworkers, or just people you like. And let us know what you think. Drop us a line at info at Message us on Twitter, Instagram, or threads. We'd love to connect with our fans and audience. That's going to do it for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. Join us for another episode in two weeks. Until then. We'll see you next time. <laughs>